Welcome to the People with Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. We've spent the last year talking a lot about one particular infectious disease, but let's not forget there are many other diseases that infect even more people worldwide. My guest today is Dr. Zul Premji, and he has spent his entire career fighting malaria in Africa. Dr. Premji recently wrote a book about his experience, The Malaria Memoirs, My Life Journey as a Public Health Doctor in Tanzania. Today, we're going to talk about that book and how he became one of the foremost experts on malaria worldwide. Here's Dr. Zul Premji. We're going to spend most of the time talking about your brand new book, The Malaria Memoirs. Now, this is not only, it it's kind of tells your whole life story, but it's also kind of your life's work as well. Sure, I agree with that. Right, okay. So I'm curious then, like, how did you know now was the right time to write a book? So this was an intentional, well-planned uh, issue that while I was working, I had in my mind that soon after my retirement, I should start writing about my experiences. And that's why uh, if you look at the very first uh, introduction, I have quoted that the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, this is a quotation by Socrates. So, okay. so basically, uh, it was well planned. You know, I, I had thought about it. And uh, when I retired, finally, uh, in Calgary, uh, I started writing the book. Uh, started slowly, uh, the first draft, the second draft, the third draft, and then look for a publisher and all that sort of thing. But it was my whole... Uh, life time work to be summarized in a book and my major aim was that the lesson that I went through I mean I could transmit them to the future generation so it was basically examining my life analyzing my life okay and this is you, you said this is kind of something you had intended to do for a while sure Definitely. Once you started writing, how long of a process was that? Like, how long did it take from starting to actually having the finished book? Okay. Uh, so initially, uh, I thought it would be a very straightforward process. But then when I started, I realized that I had to read the autobiographies of so many others, you know. So I, I, I had to read about five, six, just to get the idea of how uh, they start and they discuss their life story and all that sort of thing. Oh, okay. Uh, so it took me some time before I started because I was trying to get used to and get all the necessary points. But COVID-19, you know, we were all confined at home. Uh, it was a lockdown. So it right. gave me a lot of time. So basically, it took me from January 2020 onwards till about... So it took me about a year. Okay, that's that's actually not not that bad. So you said you you read some autobiographies of other people. Is that where some of the quotes come? That that at, at the beginning of of the chapters, there's quotes from other people. Is that where you pick those up? No, I when I saw uh, in the library when I went and I saw some of the books, uh, I found those quotations at at the start of each chapter, and I I thought of sort 
uh, thought it was a very good way to start a chapter. So some of the quotations I had to look for uh, based upon the relevancy with the chapter that I was writing. Okay, I see. That makes and, sense. And, and some are in Kiswahili, but translated. Oh, all right. Are they like... <laughs> Like uh, colloquial phrases, or yes, kind of exactly. Some of the Kiswahili proverbs, I have used them quite generously within some of the chapters. Yeah, yeah, okay. I noticed that. Before we really get into the book, I'm curious about your ethnic origins because you know you say you even say in the book you know you were you were a Tanzanian by birth and you stayed a Tanzanian by choice. Exactly. I mean. I think many of the readers and many of the people who are listening will will know that there is the the Indian community within East Africa. It's about two to three percent of the total population. So mine was was the third generation. My son was the fourth generation who was born in Tanzania also. Okay. So we have been there for the past four generations. So, so when, whenever I was in international meetings and I introduced myself, and people definitely this question came in that how come you are not an African? Uh, you look like an Indian. I said, yeah, I left India about 200 years back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there was uh, historically s- the migration of the Indians towards the coast of East Africa uh, with the monsoon winds and all that. And they basically came to do trade and all that sort of thing yeah, in the early part of the 18th century. And, and, and since then, some of them settled down. Uh, for example, in Kenya, the railway line between the coast and the interior was built uh, mainly by Asian Indian laborers. And most of them remained back. So I, I'm not very sure whether my father was part of, uh, my, my great-grandfather uh, was part of it or not. But somehow, uh, we found ourselves well settled there. And, uh, well, we grew up there. Mm-hmm. And we know the languages very well. Uh, I speak Swahili very front, uh, frequently. I also speak one of the vernacular languages where I grew up. In the okay. south part of Tanzania, yeah. That's interesting. Like, r- reading through the book, I, I didn't know that there was a significant Indian population in... Oh, it's, it's in, even today. Even today. And you say then in the book that you, you, you never felt discrimination in all of your time living there. Yes. Uh, and one of the reasons for that was because when we grew up, you know, I have mentioned that my parents were not financially well off. So we were basically staying in in that part of the town where the indigenous people were staying, the the Africans. So I, I from very young age, I I sort of integrated. So all my friend, many of my friends, when we were kids, we used to play together. They were Africans, mm-hmm. you know. They were black Africans. I see. And, and I could go to their house, and they could come to my house. So I. I basically think that I was advantaged because I integrated much more earlier than perhaps many other Indians because, you know, the, the cities sometimes are divided. The, there is some concentration of ethnics. So 
I was basically, I grew up in the, in that area where most of them were Africans. And when I went to the secondary school, I was the only Indian student in the secondary school. The rest were all Africans, 280. I was 280. Mm -hmm. uh, the rest were all Africans. And it didn't, it didn't really matter to me because I could not see the discrimination. And then when I went to the university and I started, you know, at the university, nobody discriminates you. It's very difficult. It's, it, 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 nobody can profile you there. This is kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but I wonder if because you grew up in Africa, you lived your whole life there, that later on with the work that you did with, you know, fighting malaria, if do you think that the people were able to trust you a little bit more because essentially you were one of them? Oh, yeah. In the villages, wherever I did my research work, especially in the villages where I had uh, bed net projects and other projects, mm -hmm. uh, the sort of uh, reception I was getting at the village level and because I was speaking the language and I knew the, I knew the local politics quite well, the, I was accepted uh, as if I was one of them. In fact, okay. in one of in one of the village, they wanted me to 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 stand for a political position for uh, for an election, but I turned oh, it wow. down because uh, I thought that was too much. <laughs> sure, sure, okay. Now let, let's kind of go through then your kind of educational background. After secondary school, you went on to become a medical laboratory technologist. Exactly. Now, was this a field that you were interested in? in advance or how, how, like how did you find out about it so so basically uh, i was interested to enter any medical field and uh, okay. I, I i i had this interest of teaching so i thought that any any medical field in which i will get a place i would like to excel and then be a lecturer at the college level or the university level now when i left the city of uh, the town of Mtwara, which is south part of Tanzania, and went to Dar es Salaam, which was at that time the, the capital. It is still the commercial capital, not the political, but at that time it was still uh, both the political as well as a commercial capital. I got a place at the, the tertiary hospital that was the teaching hospital uh, sponsored by the government. Uh, for the medical laboratory technology course. So I gave an interview. I was accepted. Uh, I had the right uh, grades to, to join the biology, the physics, the chemistry, the math. Uh, so, so I was accepted and I was fully sponsored at that time by the government. Now, fully sponsored means that you stay in a hostel, you get the three meals and everything, and you also get some uh, little pocket money every month. Okay, and, and so I I went initially for the three years course in medical laboratory technology, and uh, then a two years course specializing in parasitology. Now about the sponsored by the government, were all of the students sponsored, or were there just some like no, you? no? Uh, you know, uh, I'm talking of the seventies. Uh, we okay. were a socialist country, so everybody was sponsored. Oh, I see. Okay. Tanzania in the 70s and early 80s was a socialist country. Now, you already mentioned that 
you were sort of drawn to parasitology fairly early on in your career and you know you went on to really study malaria in particular and reading through the book i wonder was that at least partially influenced by the fact that you had experience with getting malaria yourself i think oh, you said oh, four oh, yes. times uh, four times exactly uh, very severe malaria for four times and i knew how uh, sick i felt but also when i was uh, pursuing the medical uh, technology training you know at the, during those days the only way to diagnose was to see the parasites under a microscope under a very high magnification mm-hmm. a, a thousand times multiplied magnification so when i saw these parasites on a on a blood slide they were very fascinating you know Uh, they looked so beautiful but they could cause so much pathology so much uh, misery especially in children under 5 and in pregnant women mm-hmm. and pregnancy the premier gravidas especially the first pregnancy because even if you are born in a malaria malarious areas and you acquire immunity but once you get pregnant for a female her first pregnancy she becomes totally non-immune and she is prone to severe malaria so so all these things combined they really interested me and there were so many unknowns at that time about malaria which over a period of time in the last 35 40 years research has been uh, able to answer some of the uh, questions mm-hmm. so i was really interested in malaria it, it was very intentional that i wanted to do a phd in malaria right at that time but interestingly uh, the government announced sometimes in the mid 80 no in the mid 70s that if you have some sort of a medical background you can enter the medical school so there was some entry uh, criteria so i applied to become a medical student sometimes in 1979 so i started medicine in 1980 from the beginning you intended to go into pathology and parasitology in in medicine yeah yeah i mean i i was fascinated by how does the malaria especially the plasmodium falciparum can induce severe malaria and then cerebral malaria and once you have that cerebral malaria which we used to see quite a lot in the hospital uh the child becomes unconscious so neurology uh was also part of my interest i i i thought i will either go to for uh, become a physician and then specialize in neurology because of this coma and the brain involvement or i will go towards pathology and do clinical pathology so what was the deciding factor then how did you how were you swayed toward pathology the the reason was because there was when i finished my my medicine and when i did my internship soon after internship i was able to join the department as a faculty in parastrology but there was no faculty position in neurology or or in internal medicine at that time so basically i i i went for uh, parastrology it's because i became a faculty immediately so i i i could see myself climbing on the academic ladder uh in years to come so that was why i i really went for parastrology 
so this was the teaching opportunity then that you had wanted exactly which I, okay. which 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 really attracted me and uh-huh. that was my interest when you started teaching did you find that you liked it as much as you thought you would or what did it seem oh uh, it, it was exciting uh, initially when i was young i soon after my internship when i joined the university once you join the university as a faculty with an undergrad degree you the, the, your rank is a tutorial assistant so you, you assist in teaching and uh, at that time uh, it was really exciting but later on uh, when i became a professor it was even more exciting because then i was connecting with the younger generation see my students and my phd students my master students my undergraduate students i was connecting with a generation that was after me and that was very interesting because i mm-hmm. could then see uh how the whole environment changed during my time we were always looking at the microscope now we started having new uh immunological test we were also now looking at pcr and all that sort of thing the genetics the epi, uh, the epigenetics of malaria parasites so that that was very interesting yeah being connected to the younger generation that helps you keep keep informed and especially about the new technologies like you just mentioned yeah and it is a very satisfying uh, uh feeling that when your students qualify what, what do you mean qualify so when, when a student like like if i had a phd student and when he finishes his phd and gets his degree it's a very satisfying feeling that you get that you were part of his journey oh i see okay yeah i can imagine that is very satisfying exactly yeah your education didn't end there though with medical school i'm curious about how you came to study at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine okay so uh, at the WHO sometimes in the 70s there started a section which was uh, known as TDR tropical disease research it, it was a totally separate section a department within the WHO and the idea was that WHO will give scholarships to developing countries the tropical countries for students to go and do masters and phd's so that when they go back to their countries they can start uh training in tropical diseases because till that time the the public health aspects of tropical diseases the the clinical aspects people had to go to london the people had to go to belgium people had to go to boston to do uh, tropical diseases uh, we i considered the london school of hygiene and tropical medicine as the mecca of tropical medicine so i was one of the recipients of that scholarship so it was the who stroke tdr that paid for my sc- uh, study at london school of hygiene and i did a masters in medical parasitology you say in the book this is your first experience abroad So how difficult was that for you to being in a completely different country? It was really difficult because uh I you know I mean uh I had never traveled in an underground train. I had never seen an underground train. So just to take the Piccadilly line from Heathrow Airport to the Victoria station 
it was it was like climbing mount everest you know mm-hmm. I, I, it was a totally new experience mm-hmm. and then uh, you know london is a very crowded city yes so, so settling there down and then uh, starting my studies at the london school of hygiene uh, it was it was very difficult but i was very lucky because i knew the language very well i mean i grew up uh, learning english language so uh, i did not have any pro- because there were so many other students from other countries like in west africa french speaking countries from latin america spanish uh, speaking countries you know they came there and uh, it was difficult for them to cope up because in- they they were not that fluent in english but i had no issues to cope up with the studies at the london school of hygiene at the same time the undergraduate course in tanzania which uh, when i became a med- uh, medical doctor we have a bias towards uh, public health and tropical diseases so if you don't know how to analyze csf for a case of meningitis nobody will forgive you that but if you cannot read an ecg at that time there was no echo or anything of that sort there was an ecg but if you make a mistake in reading an ecg they would they would shut their eyes you know but if you don't know how to do gram stain and how to analyze the csf for meningitis or malaria parasites and all that then i mean it would you would be inviting a failure now you mentioned earlier how you had intended to go on and get a phd and you eventually went and did that in Sweden. Exactly. So, all right, can you tell us about that experience? How is that different than your time in London? So, so first of all, let me let me say that a PhD was imposed on me in the sense that in the academic rank you cannot be promoted if you don't have a PhD. Okay. So the university regulation at one time forced me to get a, a, an opening for a PhD. Anyhow, I got an opening in Sweden. at the Karolinska Institute and it was a beautiful thing i mean i i really had a good time in sweden in the mm-hmm. sense that the academic system there was totally different now the scandinavian countries have a phd system that is very different from the uk system the the phd system in scandinavia is through publication So so if you can publish on a single subject four to five papers and they are accepted by renowned journals then you you can combine those papers and write a story out of that and then the papers become part of that this uh, dissertation okay now being at the university i knew the the skill set that is required for publication and if you don't publish you perish at the university so so i think i thought that uh, a phd that also teaches you how to write papers and publish uh, submit those papers and once they are published so that system was very good now compared to uk uh, that in uk you don't uh, have to publish you just write your dissertation and uh, if you can publish one later on 
So it is not a uh, publication is not a requirement. While in Sweden, you cannot get a PhD if you don't have four, five published papers and one submitted or accepted. So the PhD system in Sweden was something that I thought would give me the strength for being a future faculty. And which was true that because once I finished my PhD in Sweden, but I collected the data. So it was a sandwich program. I collected the data in Tanzania. I analyzed it in Sweden and I defended my PhD in Sweden. And we had this bilateral uh, collaboration with uh, uh, Sarek by that time, Sida Sarek. That is the Swedish foreign agency. And uh, we used to get uh, funding from that. And it, it, later on, I was one of the heads of the Swedish uh, project that I, I malaria project uh, in Dar es Salaam. And I was also receiving students from Sweden, the Swedish students, and you pair it with a Tanzanian student. So two, two students doing PhD together on a single topic, but with different, uh, objectives. So, you know, that uh, has progressed. Now we have so many PhD students from Sweden in Tanzania and Tanzanian PhD students also. In the book, you say, you cannot end poverty in Africa without defeating malaria. Does poverty cause malaria or does malaria cause poverty? And I was really kind of struck by that quote. So I'd like to talk about this. How are malaria and poverty related? Just to start with the primary school, you know, in the, when the children are still uh, under 10 years old, they have started their class one and grade one and grade two, something like that. During just after the rainy season, the absent, absenteeism from school is almost 40%. And because the, the children suffer, they, they have fever, they have malaria, they can't come to for school. Similarly, if you are a peasant, you are a farmer and you get sick. You know, you cannot farm for a week, sometimes even two weeks, depending upon the severity. So, the ability to earn money goes down. But because of poverty, your housing, the, the, the houses that you stay in, you know, thatched with grass, uh, there is no ceiling, there is no cement, it's all mud, and it all invites mosquitoes. You know, uh, there is a, a space between the roof and the wall. And the mosquitoes, I mean, I have seen thousands of mosquitoes there uh, but you see but if you have money you have a good house a, a well cemented house with floors and with ceiling and with mm. a, a, a corrugated iron sheets as a roof and all that sort of thing so housing is a major issue because uh, poor housing will invite mosquitoes and all that sort of thing urbanization is also uh, inclusive Unplanned urbanization, in which most of the metropolitan cities in Africa suffer from unplanned urbanization, which means that there is not a proper drainage system, the water collection is not properly managed. So mosquitoes, that, those are the breeding grounds for mosquitoes and therefore malaria. So urbanization by itself, it is, if it is properly planned, it is a intervention 
for malaria. But if it is unplanned as it is, mm-hmm. then urbanization is a major issue. The other thing is the ability to prevent, like, you know, using uh, sprays and uh, mosquito coils. All this requires money. Now, when the country is a poor country, the farmers are poor, they don't have the means to buy all these things in order to prevent themselves because they are expensive and uh, they, you, you need to use them every, every day at night. So when I was in the villages, I used to see children being put un- inside a gunny sack and they sleep there. And, and, and imagine the temperatures are almost 30 degrees centigrade at night. In order to prevent a bite, in order to prevent an infectious mosquito bite, so all this happens because of poverty. The ability to seek health care is a major issue because in Tanzania, we had a public health system, but it was not well developed, not, nor was it well functioning at one time. So you may go to the hospital and the doctor writes a prescription which you have to go and buy the drugs. Mm-hmm. As a result, if you are poor, you cannot buy those drugs. So what happens is then you go for witchcraft or you go for a traditional practitioner. So basically, there is a vicious cycle. Now, uh, I was invited in 1992 to Washington to give a plenary session about bed nets because that was the research program that I was doing. And if you... Remember, in 1992, we did not have PowerPoint presentations. We had what we used to call transparencies. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. So I had a global map of malaria distribution. That was my first transparency. I wanted to show that. But I don't know what happened while I was traveling from Dar es Salaam to Washington. I lost my first transparency. So we were at the NIH uh, campus. So I was able to go to the library. And I did a photocopy of the global map and I presented that. But that was not the distribution of malaria. That global map was the dif- distribution of poverty, which was a mirror image of malaria distribution globally. Interesting. And nobody noticed it. Everybody thought I was presenting a malaria map the global malaria distribution, but it was actually a poverty. So you can see the, the relationship is very strong. The poor countries globally are the ones that have the highest prevalences of malaria. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Zul Premji. We'll be right back. You've heard me talk about LabVine before, and this is an online learning platform for laboratory professionals where you can earn continuing education credits. And these are accredited by the Society of Medical Laboratory Technology of South Africa, as well as PACE in the U.S. and the Royal College of Pathologists in the U.K. I want to tell you about a new feature available on LabVine called the ConfLab. This is an opportunity for laboratory thought leaders, subject matter experts, and consultants to share their expertise with other lab professionals. And you can follow the link in the show notes to apply to be a ConfLab expert. Dress a Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress a Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. 
And now back to Dr. Zul Premji on the People of Pathology podcast. And you discuss in, in the book, too, the, like the public health challenges in sub-Saharan Africa, which I think is, is kind of related to this. And you talk about kind of the triple threat of you've got the tropical infections, non-communicable diseases, and then the exotic fatal epidemics like, like Ebola, which I think you mentioned in the book. Yeah, yeah. So, so when you talk of tropical infections, uh, HIV is part of it. Well, of course. Okay. And whenever there is HIV, then there is tuberculosis. Okay. And malaria is also sense. part of it. So, 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 so you see, the, the whole uh, tropical diseases, uh, HIV, TB, uh, malaria, polio, the worms, elephantiasis, oncocercasis, they all be part of that. So we had these infections right from the start, uh, some 40, 40, 40 years back. But then with independence, a middle class of African politicians and businessmen started up. So, so then we started the challenges of NCDs, the non-communicable diseases like hypertension, uh, obesity and all that sort of thing. Okay. And that is because mm-hmm. yeah. of the middle class, uh, which was created over a period of time. Now, NCDs like diabetes, you will require medication throughout your life. You will, you will need metformin and so forth. Okay. But the root cause is your lifestyle changes. Now, we were very good at controlling infectious diseases, which did not have much lifestyle changes except some behavior change in HIV. Okay. But now we are faced with diseases where we need a lifestyle change. And from what I have experienced in some of these African countries, there is very little being done about lifestyle changes. You know, uh, the, the university hospital where I was working, was a huge one. The hospital had 3,000 uh, inpatient beds, and then there was the university part of it. But we never had a gym, but we had a a, a bar within the, the campus. So in the evening, we could go and have a beer, but there was no gym. You There was nowhere you could go and, you know, stretch yourself and do some resistance training. or all. So lifestyle changes requires a totally different mindset which unfortunately is not existing just now. So for, for, for a city like Dar es Salaam, when I left in 2013 and I've been going there almost on an yearly basis, I have never seen an open-air gym. Hmm. And you, if there is an open-air uh, gym, you can use it for the whole year, 12 months, because there is no winter. <laughs> the temperatures right, don't go right. below 20 degrees centigrade. So, you know, the population has not been properly sensitized about obesity, the metabolic syndrome, and all that sort of thing. So, NCDs today are really causing a lot of havoc. They are claiming a lot of lives, the lifespan. You have a young uh, PhD holder coming back to to either teach or to work, something like that. And in another five, six years, because of obesity, he suffers from a myocardial infarction or a stroke and is rendered useless. He becomes a vegetable. 
or he dies. Some of these sub-Saharan African countries require a very robust lifestyle changes program. So, and, and that needs a lot of behavior change. The infrastructure has to be there. All right. Now, that's that's an interesting point. I mean, you, I think you say in the book that the countries, they don't need foreign aid. These countries need to be allowed to do to correct these things on their own rather than having foreign uh, intervention. Is that, am I interpreting that correctly? Sure. So, so if you look like a country like Tanzania, which is about 60 years of independence, Kenya, 55, 50 years of independence, they have now been able to train the mass of human resource that is required because they started universities and all that. They have, a generation of well-qualified individuals who can who can work on these issues. Now, in order to create lifestyle changes, you don't need somebody from Europe or America to come and preach about you need to walk 10,000 steps per day, you don't need to gain weight and all that sort of thing. I mean, you see, this can be done at home and mm -hmm. at a very low price. So I don't think foreign aid is required. But let's say for a disease like HIV, we need foreign uh, investment in order to provide the ARVs, which were expensive initially, and now they are not patented, so they are cheap. But we need a program to give us. Just now the COVID-19 uh, COVID vaccine, we need that. That, that I agree. But right. some of the issues can easily be uh, overcome by 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 the country themselves. Now, there are a lot of declarations within the the African unity and even within the, the global WHO uh, programs that what percentage of your GDP should go to the health budget? I think it's 15% or something. I, I'm not very sure about that. But most of the Africans are not meeting that. Okay. But they, they spend half of their budget on the army. So that's why I'm saying malaria. My own experience with malaria was that I was driven to the politics of it because I children were dying on my hands at one time because there was no chloroquine and the chloroquine was so cheap. It was less than 10 cents, but it was not available. You spend a, a, quite a bit of time in the book talking about the influence of politics on malaria controls, kind of how politics and corruption can be part of the problem. In fact, you say every Tanzanian is passionate about two things, the country's politics and the soccer clubs. Yes. Okay. <laughs> we, we call it football, but uh, yeah, the soccer football, is the okay. right thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. It's not American football. It is soccer. Right. Gotcha. The, the original football. Yeah. Okay. Now, you, you give some examples of how malaria control measures are used to gain political points in, in some of those countries. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, for example, just now, most of the sub-Saharan African countries are using insecticide-treated bed nets as one of the interventional strategies to, to prevent malaria. So, you will find politicians just before election time 
giving out bed nets free in order to gain a political point there, so, uh, to score a political point, uh, some election, uh, electoral votes. Oh, I see. Outdoor spraying is also an important thing to kill the mosquitoes. Uh, you can spray outside. So that spraying happens only when there is election is round the corner, or there is some politician who is uh, influencing that. Now I I had a lot of friction about this. You see, the area where I was working, uh, we we were giving out free uh, free uh, insecticide treated nets because it was a research project. Mm-hmm. And and the local politician was saying that it was he who was giving the nets. So it was like using my shoulder to fire his gun. <laughs> okay. Okay. So 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 that is one. The other thing is procurement. They, they, most of these developing countries they have a, a, a government system of procurement. So uh, they they buy medication medicines through a procurement system, which is central. And there's a lot of corruption there. I mean, there are, there are so many examples, even in the newspapers, uh, these things have come up, that substandard companies are given contracts to supply the drugs which never come. You see, and therefore there is a lot of this issue. Even in this COVID-19, uh, a lot of PPE, have they, they lost them at the airport and they were sold, and there is a lot of corruption. Uh, mm. When I was actively involved in Dar es Salaam, uh, I was part of the university, but the Ministry of Health was using me a lot, in a sense, as a consultant. Okay. And you get an invitation to go for a meeting to Morogoro. Morogoro is about three to four hours drive from Dar es Salaam. It's another city. And I, I, and I ask, why do we go there for a meeting? And the answer is because if we go there, we get uh, allowances, the night allowance. Now, it was a very easy way to justify the donor's money. That we had a meeting in Morocco, but why can't we have a, have a meeting in Dar es Salaam and there is no need for allowances? The allowances can really be used to prevent malaria. So, you know, all these things that I experienced when I was there. but. You know, you cannot fight the system on your own. You have to flow with the system. Mm-hmm. So definitely there, there is, there was a lot of corruption. There is still a lot of corruption. Uh, the government is doing its best, especially the last uh, Tanzanian government, the fifth phase government, and now we have the sixth phase government, uh, in trying to fight the, the, the corruption and all that. But it is still there. I mean, uh, you, in order to prevent, in order to minimize corruption, you need the right uh, institutions, which may not be existing there. You know, you mentioned a little while ago uh, chloroquine, and I'm curious about chloroquine resistance. And you give, uh, in the book, you give a few examples of, you know, some patients that were assumed that because they had the correct symptoms, they were assumed to have malaria and then given chloroquine when you found out that in fact they didn't have malaria and they didn't need that treatment and i'm curious if is that what contributed to the resistance just the overuse or i guess misuse of chloroquine so in the 60s 
chloroquine was one of the wonder drugs in, in Tanzania and in most of the sub-Saharan African countries. It was a very safe drug. You could even give it in first trimester of pregnancy. Uh, and there was no impact on the fetus or on the pregnant women. In fact, we, we used to prescribe chloroquine to, in pregnancy and in children. There was mm-hmm. no side effect, basically. In, in, in a week's time, everything is back to normal. You have transitory problems in the eyes. You cannot focus properly, but it would go away uh, in a day or two. So chloroquine was very safe. But at that time, the World Health Organization came up with a program known as IMCI, Integrated Management of Childhood Illnesses. And in that one, one of the issue was any fever in, in sub-Saharan Africa should be treated with chloroquine. So you have a fever for a thousand other reasons, but you will receive a chloroquine. So it was actually, we were taught about it. When I was in the medical school, any fever has to be treated with chloroquine in order to reduce mortality. This was a WHO. I mean, there is a lot of literature uh, towards that thing. It was uh-huh. World Health Organization recommending to African countries that treat any fever with chloroquine. So in due course, just like any other biological system, uh, the antimalarial chloroquine, the parasites became resistant. So you, I could actually see myself in the field treating children with chloroquine, and within within a week, they come back with the fever. And they become more anemic because malaria causes anemia. And you, are, you have not really f- completely uh, eradicated the parasites because of the resistance. So mm-hmm. by, by mid-80s, we started seeing these clinical failures quite a bit. And I was one of the pioneers in Tanzania to get the data and try to negotiate with the government that, look, we need a change in policy. So sometimes in the mid-90s, late 90s, uh, I was able to convince the Ministry of Health and so many other stakeholders that we need to change. At that time, we had to change to sulfadoxin pyrimethamine, which generically it's known as Fancidar. Now, it, uh, sulfadoxin pyrimethamine has its own uh, unique problems, you see, because of the sulfadoxin component. But that drug did not even last long, and we knew about it. But luckily, we had Artemisia, which was uh, discovered in China. So this was a new antimalarial in the year 2000. And that's when we started doing clinical trials on this new drug. And in, and then we combined it with lumefantrine. So artemisia lumefantrine, uh, it is known as SCT combination. So that is the one that is being used just now. But even now I, uh, I see reports already coming out of some sort of resistance in sub-Saharan Africa. So the chloroquine resistance story is a big story. It started off in Cambodia, in Thailand, in Southeast Asian countries, and then the resistance came to the coast of East Africa, and then it went from East Africa to West Africa. It was really a very exciting scientific time. You know, you, I was in the middle of it, and I, I it was part of my work mm-hmm. to look at this uh, 
chloroquine patients who, who were relapsing. So mm-hmm. for very severe diseases, right from the start, the drug of choice was quinine, which was it, it which is another group of uh, uh, another group of chemical. And now we were starting to use quinine even for se- uh, uh, ordinary malaria, not severe malaria, uncomplicated malaria, which was not right, which was dangerous also, because quinine treatment has its own flaws. Uh, but we had to we had to somehow go over till we we till the new drug came in and and the trials were done in Africa in number of places and and that's when we started using it one advantage of the new drug was it was also gametocidal gametocidal means that it killed the gametocytes so if you become less infectious to the mosquito but the other drugs the fancidar and the chloroquine they didn't, they never killed the gametocyte so you still remained infectious to the mosquito when the mosquito bites you you can transmit malaria to the mosquito the malaria parasites that's what i meant the gametocytes they they enter the mosquito but with this new drug the gametocytes became non viable so you see the 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 present prevalence of malaria that is going down in sub-Saharan Africa, there is a lot of success in the prevention. Partly it is due to the new drug, which is gametocidal, and it is very efficient, uh, efficacious, and then the use of the uh, insecticide-treated bed nets and the use of indoor spraying, especially in epidemic-prone areas. So, 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 so malaria control is succeeding, but with this COVID-19 now and some other uh, fevers like Ebola and all that, the, the, the malaria control program gets a lot of problems because uh, resources are then diverted. Okay, so there is progress being made, but it's there are setbacks from time to time. Yeah, sure, definitely. Okay, okay. All right. Now, the, the last last thing I wanted to ask you about, I talk a lot on this podcast with, with of the different guests about uh, mentors and mentorship and that sort of thing. And in, in your book, you mention four mentors that you've had throughout your career. What sort of influence did these four people have on, on your career path? So when I, when I joined the Department of Parasitology, sometimes in 1985, 86, the head of that department was Professor Minjas. So he, he sort of accepted me uh, in the department and uh, he was my head. He was a trained teacher. He had acquired uh, an educational degree, one of the educational degrees at the university. So he was a trained teacher to teach. I was not a teacher. I, I mean, I just became a doctor and I started teaching. So I learned a lot of things from him, the, the actual teaching methodology, how to ask examination questions when you, when you set up an exam, what sort of questions do, would you like to ask? You know, how do you ask them? The language and all that. So I learned a lot of teaching from him on, on the bench. You know, uh, he used to guide me. So in a way, I, I learned quite a bit. And then he gave me the opportunity to go to London because the scholarship came through the department. He was the one who selected me. 
no doubt i was the only one at that time qualified but still i mean uh, he he could have uh, said that no this is not the right time for you to go but he encouraged me i went for my masters to london and when i came back uh, he was the recipient of a grant from uh, usid for bednet control program uh, in bagamoyo which is the next which is a village where we did our bednet research and uh, he 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 sort of inc- asked me to join him in the research program and i learned quite quite a, quite a lot of things from him you know so so basically early very early in my career i had i was fortunate enough to be part and we were also good friends because we were we were in the same department uh, we were faculty uh, so we we became quite good friends our families became good friends and uh, i got a lot of opportunities uh, during his time later on i became the head of the department i replaced him actually <laughs> okay uh, clive schiff he was a professor at the john hopkins university school of public health and he was the recipient of that grant and we he was collaborating with us uh in the bagamoyo bednet project i have mentioned something about that in the book so uh he used to come to tanzania we used to work together in the field i was the clinician uh, in charge in the field and i used to do all these mobile clinics and all that and i i i i had the opportunity to travel to to john hopkins uh, a couple of times uh, and therefore we were working together and i i i gained a lot of uh, experience from i from him as a researcher but with him we were introduced to bacton dickinson sometimes in the very early 90s and he was part of that team that is the time when we discovered and we pioneered a, a malaria rapid malaria diagnostic test this was in the early part of the 90s today that test is everywhere in sub saharan africa so it has actually replaced the microscope so instead of one hour wait time you can do that test in 5 minutes and you can tell the the child has malaria or no malaria and it can be done at the bedside it doesn't have to be done in the in the laboratory so okay. we were the pioneers for that test with clive schiff andes bjorkman was my phd supervisor he 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 was a professor at karolinska institute and uh, so he supervised my phd so when i went to sweden and so i was his student i i, I was his phd student and then later on i was his collaborator because we worked uh for so many years together till today he still works with my uh students who are now who who replaced me uh so so anders bjorkman uh gave me the opportunity to go and do a phd in sweden and he guided me through throughout my phd so i have learned a lot of things from him also i mean the academic part of phd's and all that sort of thing but as a human being he also taught me a lot about crisis management he was a very calm person you know i mean a, a very mm-hmm. humble and calm person and even in crisis he used to have his way out of it so you know by just observing and being near him i i learned a lot uh, at one time while i was in sweden he was the editor of acta tropica which is a medical journal 
and so I was also helping him to to organize the the articles and all that sort of thing. So I, I learned the whole uh, peer review processes and all that from him. So so definitely, I'm very grateful to Anders Bjorkman, and we are in touch uh, even today, either through new students or uh, just saying hello. It's a Christmas, happy, happy new year and all that sort of thing. The last one is Wafai. Wafai is a professor at the uh, Harvard School of Public Health in the Department of Nutrition. Uh, he has a PEFAR funds. PEFAR funds are American government funding for, for research in HIV and other diseases in sub-Saharan Africa. So I was one of his collaborators and we worked together quite a lot. So he, 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 he basically was my colleague. See, he, he, uh, I was the PI in Tanzania and uh, he was the PI in Harvard University in Boston. So I, I, I've been to Boston a number of times. I have given lectures at the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, and through him, we started a program with Chris Murray. Uh, the director of the HMIS Health Metrics in Seattle. I'm sure he's a very famous man in, in the US now because of predicting the models of COVID-19. So I have mm -hmm. worked with Chris Murray also with, in collaboration with Fauzi for a program for vulval autopsies and also for burden of disease. You know, you know, in, in Africa, it's very difficult to quantify the burden of disease because post-mortems are not mandatory. So we, we, we introduced uh, verbal autopsies. And through that, we were able to quantify the burden of a specific disease. And that work is still ongoing. So I, I, it is through his collaboration that we did all that. We also did a lot of micronutrient studies in malaria and in pregnancy. So, so I mean, I had a I had a wonderful uh, collaboration with him as a colleague, and we worked quite a lot. And those programs today are really uh, big programs in some of the countries in Africa, where uh, the new people now, new students have come in and they have taken over. So, so those are the four people in my life that I thought I it was worth mentioning because they had a lot of impact on my work. Yeah, it, it sounds like it, and it it also sounds like you've taken the lessons that you learned from them, and now you're and you passed it on to the to your own students. Oh yes, uh, the 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 current head of the department in Muhimbili, which is the university there, was my PhD student. Uh, after I got my PhD in Sweden, I was able to train locally about seven PhDs in Dar es Salaam. Mm -hmm. So, so you see, uh, you, and many masters students and all that sort of thing. So you pass on the knowledge to the upcoming generation and then you give them that responsibility. Uh, you, you, you supervise them and then they, they are there. I mean, they take over. Right. Time goes, time flies. That, that is true. Yes, it does. You, you know, Dr. Premji, I have to say, I, I really, I enjoyed your book. It was there was a lot in there that I didn't know about Africa and about malaria, and I, I enjoyed it. I've recommended it to a few people already, and I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with me 
today about about the book and and just about your life and career. So uh, thank you very much. This was this was fascinating. Oh, thank you so much, and uh, uh, thanks for having me in the in in the program. Great big thanks to Dr. Premji. I've got a trailer for you right now of my interview with Dr. Marianne Hamill. I want to talk a little bit about then the, the Death Under Glass Instagram account, which we mentioned a little bit earlier. And it's sort of, you know, at the beginning here, you were talking about the, the histology images, the microscopic images and things like that. And it's sort of, it seems like it's sort of evolved into kind of broader forensic topics. Um, how, how, does, how did that start to happen? I noticed that when I sort of posted about what my day-to-day life as a medical examiner was like, the the posts were really popular and people had um, very intelligent and thoughtful questions. And, you know, sometimes I post about things that I think don't get much attention, like how much work my assistants do in the morgue. You know, the people who really run a large big city morgue aren't the forensic pathologists. They're the, the staff that handle things like taking a census of, you know, who's in the cooler, um, handling body release, right. keeping track of your toxicology, mopping the floor. I mean, I just, I show up once in a while with, you know, sharp objects and smart remarks. So <laughs> it's, but on television, the, the forensic pathologist is always sort of like this lone wolf who does, you know, everything from the autopsy to identifying the body to the right. paperwork. And that is completely untrue. There's a huge support network uh, around medical examiners that gets almost no press. You can hear more from Dr. Hamill in episode number 49. This was such an interesting story. And Dr. Premji is, well, he's a super nice guy. I really enjoyed speaking with him. Again, the book title is The Malaria Memoirs, My Life Journey as a Public Health Doctor in Tanzania. And I think the book is still on pre-order for now, but I'll have a link in the show notes for that. You can pre-order the book and I highly recommend you do. You won't be disappointed. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn, or you can just go to peopleofpathology.com and there are links to Twitter and LinkedIn, and you can listen to all the episodes right there as well. Thanks for continuing to share this show with others, and I hope you share this episode as well. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.